So, okay, we're with Harper Brock, Missing in the Midwest is the documentary short film. It's a true crime documentary, played the crime mystery film festival. It's it's about the, the abduction of Joelle Lockwood um, in in Indiana, correct? But then you're she's she's related to you, correct? Correct. She is my cousin by like married in. So this is a let's just say to be fair, it's a it's a personal film. Yes, correct. And this was done at Savannah College. Yes, the Savannah College of Art and Design uh, as my undergrad thesis. So tell me about that process, about like kind of like why, like your desire to do this, tackle this, to this, this, uh, this film and like do it within the, within, like you said, within the university. Yeah. So when I was getting into my junior year, I knew that I wanted to start thinking about my thesis early and I knew I wanted to do something in documentary because I'd been producing people's theses for them for the past year. And I knew I wanted to do something kind of that would push me as a filmmaker. I never really wanted to direct. I always wanted to be a producer, but I knew if I did something personal that I would have to direct. So I went to Indiana and I'm a, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, but I would go to Indiana every break I had and just talk to Joelle about the possibility of doing you know, a documentary on her. And it was a whole two year process from our first conversation to completion um, but I just knew that my family also really wanted me to do this story because she had never spoken out to the media before because she didn't really trust the media. And since it was a school project, you know, no one's getting paid. Everyone's there because they actually care about the story. And all these students really just were intrigued and wanted to help tell her story. So I had a lot of support from the school, which was great. Ended up becoming a grant recipient and they helped fund part of it. And it was just a really great process to work with the professors when you're struggling with something that has such a dark topic matter so young, if that makes sense. So, okay, so and then you would, so basically the the premise is that she was she went missing in 2014, yes. correct? And she's she's alive now, and you interviewed her in the film, and you're kind yes. of talking about the process of what happened. Yes. So how I structured it was really, you know, our first act is let's set up who she is, who is, you know, what happened to Joel Lockwood before she was abducted? Really, what's her life been like up until when she was about 30 and then was abducted? And then our second act is really structured about what happened to her during the 59 days she was missing from the time she was abducted to the time she was able to escape. And then our third act is essentially what happened to her after all the press left? Like everyone was so interested, really engaged. She got the, she coined the term girl in the cage. And then it's been eight years and no one really knows what her life has looked like. So I kind of worked in those areas, but, and I used a lot of different resources. Like I went to her mother, I went to her family. I went to the lead investigator and another detective who really helped build out the second act and showed us all the evidence. Mm -hmm. But Overall, the whole question that I was trying to think, trying to uncover was what happened to Joel and how do you move on from something so traumatic like this? Yeah, well, those are two key questions. And the, I have to ask because this is this is like a dateline, you know, dateline does those those Saturday, whatever NBC shows. This is a classic episode from a dateline. What has she been? I'm I'm assuming she's been offered opportunities to tell her story. 
and for money, I'm assuming as well. But why hasn't she done that? I'm just curious. Yeah, she has been uh, offered a couple opportunities from international, national level. Yeah. Uh, I think when it comes down to it, she has children who are actually my cousins. And she just doesn't want to feel exploited. And I think when we look at the true crime genre as a whole, there's a lot of exploitation happening. And part of it that working with us and working with the students was she did have some creative say. And we also didn't put in as much of the the people who did it to her, the terrible, terrible people, Ricky and Kendra. Whereas I think if it would have went to like a network or, you know, streaming service and been done in-house, yeah. it would have really focused on the criminals since it is just so crazy what they did. Whereas ours was more, okay, let's make a character arc of her story, focus on her and not focus on really these heinous criminals who don't really deserve to have that much screen time. Gotcha. And it, it's interesting. Well, this is this, there's a happy ending to this story. So 90, well, I don't know the stats offhand. You probably know better than I do, but generally speaking, if someone gets, gets kidnapped or abducted, they're, they're, they're not going to come back. They're, 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 they're basically dead. Right. And she did, she survived. She, she escaped. So it's almost like a Hollywood story in a lot of ways where, because it's because of the happy ending, I guess, right? Definitely. And I think once you pass that first 48-hour mark, it's, you know, we were all expecting, and I remember I was 13 when this happened, so I still remember parts of it and my parents talking about it. And yeah. I I remember everyone just thought she's going to come back, like, in a body bag. And the lead detective actually said um, in the documentary on the phone, he's like, where is she buried? When they're like, we found Joel. She's like, oh, where's like the body? And then the uh, receptionist said, oh no, she's alive. And that's like, everyone was just shocked that she was still alive because like you said, the odds aren't that likely. Yeah. And it's a parent's obviously with, you know, stating the obvious, it's a parent's worst nightmare, right? So no matter how old or young the child is, that's you don't want to see a loved one. So you're, so you're almost a story in itself as well. Like you're not in the film, but you're you have a your own personal journey because you were only 13 years old when this happened right how did you how did you wrap this around your head when you're when this was happening yeah and i think i pushed really this is something that with the savannah college art and design they pushed really heavily they said you need to put your journey in and so i used it as a frame which was great when you're young and trying to make a documentary and you need like a little narration yeah (laughs) um but it was a, I mean, when I was 13, I wasn't really sheltered. Like I talk about it in the film, but I wasn't really sheltered. My parents, my dad's a police officer and detective okay. and my mom was a criminal prosecutor. So I knew that like horrible things happened to people. And like, I think the year before this happened, like one of my dad's coworkers was killed in the line of duty. So like, I knew like how serious some of the stuff they dealt with in their job was. But at the same time, it always felt like it was a bridge away. It wasn't ever going to happen to someone I knew. And I think using the lens of like going back to when I was 13 and trying to uncover what really happened, it's almost like, and also going through college at the same time, it's almost like the death of my childhood. And now I'm moving into the adult world and realizing, you know, things aren't always what you, your, par- yeah. your parents can't shelter you from everything. And I really didn't know 
all of what happened to Joel until I did this process. I knew bits and pieces. I obviously knew about the cage, but the biggest thing that really shocked me was when we went down to the evidence room and looked at all the evidence. That's when even like the male, um, the male camera unit on my documentary, you know, they've been very firm, very, you know, straight faced the whole time. Even their facial expression was, wow, this just got really, really, really serious. Yeah. No, it's interesting. You, you, you basically described it. Cause I, I understand that like, this is more emotional, the more, more like, I remember when I am from like, we were talking before the podcast, I'm from Niagara Falls. And so mm-hmm. then we, there was some, this guy named Paul Bernardo and his wife and they adopted these two girls who are like basically a year older than me. And that's when my childhood ended. Like mm-hmm. I remember distinctly, I was 14 years old. It was like, Oh shit, just got real. This is, this is life. And it's like, I'm not, I'm not playing in the sand anymore. I'm not playing with my toys anymore. And then all of a sudden everything changed for me emotionally. So it seems like you had that personal journey as well, where like this happens and all of a sudden you're, you, you become an adult faster than you want to, I guess. Correct. I would say, and it's funny, like you memories of like things that happened to you seem to be, you'll press them back. So like the memory of my mom telling me your cousin went missing. That's in the very beginning. You know, it was in a TJ Maxx. I hadn't really thought about that memory until I started this process. And then I'm like, I remember exactly what pillow she was holding. I remember every visual. I remember exactly the look on her face when she told me that she went missing. And that's something I hadn't thought about in 10, I would say probably not 10, but like five years maybe. And all of a sudden it becomes crystal clear again. Yeah. And so your, your dad was, your dad was a detective. Yes. Yeah, so both of, we live in Cincinnati, so they weren't involved in this case per se. No, but he um, understood but, what was happening because he he has firsthand knowledge, right? So yeah. Yes, and they were trying to help from afar with like what knowledge they have just from their backgrounds and their careers. But we were just—I mean, you can't make up this type of story. No, if you would have put like a thousand ideas of what have happened, it wouldn't even be on the board. Like what have happened? What had happened to her? Okay, so tell me about the the process. How like the mom is is such a key interview to the to this film. How did you like? The, did you have to convince the mom to be interviewed? Like because she she's very revealing in the film, and obviously she had the she had a very obviously with the state of least a very emotional journey. So you you had to bring her back like ten years, I guess, right to this to this time. How was that for the? How was that interview process? Yeah, I definitely think. Um... <clears throat> She was pretty much on board since Joel was like, this is okay. I want her, I want my mom to be a part of this. I think she would do anything for her daughter. And I think Joel used this as like a therapeutic uh, kind of coping mechanism. And she said she got a lot out of it. And I think once Candy heard that Joel was on, she was like, I'll do anything for my daughter. I'll help her. I'll be a part of this. And Candy, Candy was funny because she kept saying, well, I don't know how good the interview will be. And I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't know how much I'll remember. But her interview, I also like Mayhew, the detective's interview, or the lead investigator's interview. Yeah, I, I think it, a second. Yeah, it was pretty great. Yeah. yeah, I think her interview is the strongest. I think she has some of the most heartfelt moments just talking about parents dealing with kids in addiction, thinking that she's going to find her daughter in a body bag. And I think her interview... And how she just was able to remember everything that happened and kind of have to put herself back there. It was really brave of her to do so. 
100%. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, it was because, like I said, like, no, like, I'm sure that she's had to have her own process of like dealing with this trauma, right? Like, it's, I'm sure there's some PTSD involved in like, you can't, you can't, it's the worst thing that can happen to a parent. Let's just put it that way, right? So, like, in that, those 59 days, I'm, I'm sure we're, were unbelievably uh, traumatizing because it's like there, there's also you don't know right like you're thinking the worst but then you're also there's still hope I guess right so there's like it's a it's a really interesting polarizing kind of emotion I'm sure she was dealing with during the, that two month process. So yeah, and she also. Oops, sorry. No, good. Yeah, and she also at this time she had custody of all of Joel's children, so yeah. she was dealing with basically being a parent, and what she did is she really hid a lot of it from them. Like there would be billboards of like Joel Lockwood missing and she would specifically not take the kids by those billboards. So the kids kind of knew what was going on, not really. And she was able to really protect them while having to go through and like do searches and go through this emotional journey. I mean, she's just like, she's a rock star and she's one of like the sweetest, kindest, most like powerful people I've met. And how old were the kids at the time? I'm pretty sure her oldest son was about trying to think about 13 because he's about my age. And then her daughter was like about 11, 10. So they're in their they're in their 20s now, I guess. They're in their 20s now. Um, but she also has a daughter who's four or five now as well. Okay, but you you did you did did you ever think of interviewing them for the film? I thought about it. Um so I'm not I don't know her oldest son that well. I know her middle daughter is, we hung out, we were cousins, we would go to events together, but she was 17 when we did it. And I just didn't feel comfortable approaching her, but she actually ended up, um, she owns like a baking service. She does like freelance baking and she actually made cookies for our whole, uh, cookies and a cake for our whole crew. So she knew what was going on. I just felt since she wasn't, you know, she's, a minor I just didn't feel like it was appropriate to ask her and I don't I think she's she was a senior in high school she's about to go to college I don't want to bring up anything for her yeah I understand it just okay so tell me about the how were the the was the police force were they a police force was the the detect were they were they accommodating like how did you get permission for them to, to be filmed because I'm sure that they're a little bit sensitive about kind of detailing everything, I guess, what happened in the case. Oh, yeah, they were amazing. So essentially, after the first meeting with Joelle, she went and signed papers saying, you know, all these records can go to Harper Brock, she can look at them, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where I got, you know, the names of people. And really, the first person I was introduced to, because they still talked to Joelle, was the lead investigator, uh, Tony Mayhew. And Tony Mayhew... I really could do a whole separate documentary on him. He is just such an interesting character. And I wish I had a little more time in the documentary to talk about his journey. But he was the most accommodating. He was able to just really get us in touch with uh, Fortune, who was the detective down in the basement. And I was just shocked by how willing they were to help. I think they all just remember Joelle being such such a beam of light that since Joel was really wanting to do this and accommodating, they were like, we're going to be as accommodating as possible. I mean, they let us film all of the old evidence, yeah. which was amazing, which I would never imagine we would have gotten access to. So they were wonderful to work with. I still talk to the two of them 
every once in a while. And they just really, really two great men who are really doing great things in their community. And, and, uh, and basically it's a successful case. Like they, they basically did their due diligence and they found where she was and they, I'm assuming those people are still in jail, right? Are they still in jail? Correct. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, he was sentenced, she was, she was sentenced to um, 25 years in prison, right? Correct. She took a plea deal. Um, so that's yeah. why her time was a little less. That's the, the, the I I brought up the Bernardo thing. It's like it's like like she's just as complicit as he is, but she gets a lesser sentence. It, it, it like it, that's what happened with the the Bernardo case, where like his wife or whatever was they they were they're just like I, you know what I mean. Like I don't understand the 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 this is two different countries as well. Like mm-hmm. why do they like you know what I mean? This is like a whole other thing thread, but basically. Why does she get less time than he does? You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. I think it's because she took the plea to testify against Ricky. Yeah. So they gave her a lesser sentence. Um, it doesn't mean she's any less evil at all. Yeah. Um, but I think that option was just placed at her feet and she took it. And, you know, Ricky's in prison for 93 years. So he's only served, I think, what what is this year? Like nine years of his yeah. sentence so far. Yeah. So, but she, I mean, she just kind of copped out. <laughs> so, okay. So then, like I said, like at the same time, like what I I called it like a happy ending, but it's, you know, she still has to live her life and she still like has to get over this, you know, this, this trauma that she experienced and you see it in an interview. So you've made a good editorial choice where you chose to interview her at the end of the film. And uh, how was that experience? Like, how much time did you have with her to to talk to her? Yeah, we had uh, about two hours. Um, but her whole entire interview actually on screen, like we took a lot of breaks, was probably only an hour and 15. And I knew that going forward, like everyone else's interviews were about two to three hours. Mm-hmm. And she made it clear. She's like, I don't want it to be a huge interview. And I was, you know, I have to respect you know, respect her for that. She has to set her boundaries. And really that interview was on the third day of a five day shoot. Yeah. And it was the only thing we had scheduled that day. Cause it was so important to me. Yeah. I, I just didn't want to put anything, any other pressure. This is why we're here. We're going to make sure it's very accommodating. And what I actually did. So my DP, his name's Anthony Pesnola. Great. Shout out to Anthony. Um, he, actually ran the second camera and I put our um our first AC who was a woman in front of her so like how we shot it it's on an Interatron so basically I'm over on the side and when you're talking to someone it looks like they're directly talking to you but you're actually looking straight into the lens and I put a woman behind that camera because I just think it would be hard it might be make it might be a little bit easier for her to talk about some of these things you know, with a woman in versus with, you know, maybe a man behind the camera. So we also all went through domestic violence and rape training. Uh, We did a seminar put on through an organization in my hometown, because I wanted everyone to be very aware of what she had gone through and know how to approach her and know how to be respectful. And I just think that was something that was really important to me in the pre-production process. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it was. It was very like, like let's, 
very emotional, like with, with, with stating the obvious, but it was very, it was a very intense interview. You can tell that, that uh, there was a lot going on in the face. Let's put it that way. A lot of subtext happening with her. So uh, great job. It's not, I know that must not have been an easy day for you. No. And I think I, we, we struggled for so long in the edit process of how are we going to structure this documentary? You know, do we show that she's alive at the, what, right at the beginning? I didn't even think about putting my own narration. We didn't even think about doing recreations till like the month before it was done. And I'm glad we did do the recreations. And I really think saving her for the end. And you, if you watch the interview, unlike the first and second act, it's very raw. Like there's jump cuts. There's, you know, it's really just her speaking. There's not a lot of stuff on top. There's not a lot of B-roll versus the beginning. It's like B-roll, B-roll, recreations, um, archival, news videos, motion media. And I think that transition and that juxtaposition really just helps bring the focus of the film back onto her. And it's almost like a, oh shit moment. Like she's alive and she's, she's here in front of us. Yeah. No, that's what it was. And another like uh, subplot in, of your film is that it's a very positive look at the police force. Like they did their they did their job. Like it's like these days, it's like really easy to shit on uh, cops in general. Like in like I've seen so many cases like this where like they just bundled it. They just kind of screwed it up like like badly, and they didn't do the due diligence in terms of, in terms of finding evidence and. You know, like, cause they had to figure out all these little, like, um, I was going to say tea leaves, but it's almost like these little tiny little puzzle pieces and they had to figure out systematically where she was and they didn't stop and they, they were tireless and they, 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 they accomplished their job and which is amazing. Definitely. And I think that goes back to the idea I was also trying to push with like, you know, in fact, we're in Midwestern small town, people yeah. look out for you. People are more willing to go above and beyond. I mean, some things, there's so much I wanted to put into this. And really the best cut of this was at like 45 minutes, but you know, no festivals want a 45 minute documentary. It's too, it's either too long or too short, yeah. but um, was she had people who came from the, to see the searches that she hadn't known in like years, people who she played soccer with when she was five. That's yeah. how much I think the interweavings of a small Midwestern town like Mount Vernon in Poseyville really kind of show that those people are really going to care about you. And at the end of the day, no matter what happens in your life, they're going to be there for you and they're going to work relentlessly to help you throughout any situation. So. So, yeah. And obviously the, the perpetrators, like I'm sure a lot of people would like want them dead, I guess. Right. So I'm sure that's a whole other, that's a whole other kind of issue that's taken place as well. We're like, everybody has their own ideology about about what should happen to these these like you you call them evil I'll I'll agree with that and uh these people because it's a conspiracy like these this couple right they conspired to do this it was like it was a it was an act it was like a it's like you know what I mean like it wasn't an instinctive crime it was like they conspired to do this they did and when I was talking to many of the different people in this case, it really, and it's said in the documentary as well, it really came down to Joel was just an opportunity. They probably would have taken anyone, to be honest. I mean, it just happened to be that they slightly knew Joel because, you know, it's a small town. Yeah. But they had conspired and planned, you know, to take someone 
And, you know, Joel just happened to be the person they were going to take. So, I mean, if that's not evil, I really don't know what, what it is. Good thing they're a little bit stupid too, right? So, yeah. that's a, you know what I mean? Like, that's a, the thank God they were a little bit stupid. Like, <laughs> so, because that, because that's what that was. Their, sorry. I was just going to say, thank God for Ron Higgs for stepping up and really kind of being the hero in this story. Yeah. And when he really just, you know, I think he, he's such an interesting character and I wish I could have gotten an actual interview with him, but he declined. He was just ready to move on from that part of his life and sure. talk about someone who's had like, you know, he talks about, he's had a rough life. He's not always been on the right side of the law. But when you see evil being done and you step up and do something about it, you know, you're good. That's a good person. That's a, he didn't have to do anything, but he knew it was wrong. He had daughters. He knew that she had kids and he did the right thing and did it with a shotgun in his face. So, yeah. No, well, listen, like there's, there's, there's petty crime and then there's crime. Right. So you know what I'm saying? There's yes. people do wrong. We all do bad things. We all do things that are maybe are not right. We're all guilty of that to a certain extent. But then there's fuckers, right? And then, then there's people like these people that, and I don't even want to, you can even get, you can even go down the thread of like what happened and why they're like that. But we all we know is that they're like that and, and they needed to be, they needed to be stopped and they, but they were right. So. Definitely. And I'm sure a lot of people don't mind that they, they weren't around anymore. Let's put it that way. Right. So. Yeah. So fantastic film. Uh, congratulations. Like you said, that like if you even if you want to go back, and I'm sure you don't because you want to move on, but there's a feature film in, in this in this film, right? You can even go talk about, like you said, like the small town, like how they banded together, like how what with detective agency did, like what how they knew each other, the the the, the perpetrators and, and and her. Like there's there's a huge there's a huge movie here, right? So definitely, and I think really right now we're just taking the short out getting eyes on it yeah one day maybe um maybe it'll get into a feature level but i think right now you know i just finished college i just moved to a new city i'm really trying to not close the door but like leave it kind of peeking open as i just focus more on my career um moving forward like i said i'm not someone who thought I was ever going to direct anything. So I'm trying to go back more into the producing and business side of um, the industry. But I don't know, that door, you never know what would happen. It's a great story, but obviously I would never do it in another form as a feature without Joelle's blessing. And I I just don't know if that's in her cards at the moment. Yeah. Well, what did she think of the film when she saw it? She... Anish, there there's always like it's, it's interesting when you're doing something personal because it's always like oh why why is this in here like can you just ch- take that part out and it's like well I can't because of the story beats like it you have to have that part in there but I think overall she was pretty happy she said the experience for her was so therapeutic and that that's all that matters to me the fact that she got something out of it I, I could care less about like you know, the final product festivals, you know, people telling you, oh, congrats, you made your first film. The fact that she was able to get something out of it. And she says in the film, she's like, maybe I can show my kids it now that they're older and they'll understand. Yeah. That, that to me is like the best, best review critique or <laughs> really award I could get out of this film. 
Hundred percent. Yeah, that's a great. It's a great way. And so we send the audience to you. What did you think of what our audience had to say about your film and the feedback video? I was shocked by how much they got, like the structure and the lens, because I, you know, you think, oh, it's all, you know, in my head, and you know, I hope it. I hope it comes across this way. I hope they see it, and they nailed it. And I was really happy because I know you know, working with the school, they're like, I don't know if some people are going to get it. I don't know if some people are going to be able to follow along and like, you know, typical school critiques, but they really nailed it. And like, it was really rewarding seeing people talk about it in such a positive light because it was a two-year process. And also everyone who worked on this film was a student. I mean, these are like 20-year-old kids making this. <laughs> so um, that was really, it was really great. It was a really great day when I got that um news it definitely brightened my <laughs> definitely brightened my outlook on this project and finishing because it was hard once I finished it you know you put it away you go to festivals but you're like you watch it now and I just watched it yesterday at a festival on a big screen I'm like oh why did I do that oh yeah. like it's the camera work are like oh the editing but then you remember everyone's only watching it for the first time and you know regardless of oh, I want to change this shot. I wish I did this. I wish I did this. If the message gets across, that's a that's a successful film yeah. in my eyes. Well, yeah, they, what they say is that you don't finish the film. You you abandon it. It's never going to be perfect, right? So you just have to yeah. like, because that's the, that's the process. And you just, like you said, as long as the story and the emotion is there, then that's all that, that's all that matters, really, of course. But then next time you make a film, you want to improve and you want to get better. And, you know, so, you know what I mean? Keep evolving, I guess, right? Definitely. And I think this was the first thing I ever directed. So I learned so much and I think it's helped me become a better producer as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now I know exactly, not exactly, but I know how to fix certain things and certain issues because there were so many hiccups in the two year journey. There were so many long edit nights editing <laughs> that I could editing till 3 a.m. and we had a critique the next day at like 8 a.m. Like there is just so much love and hard work put in by these students. Keep in mind, nobody's getting paid. They're doing it out of their own free will. Yeah. Um, that I'm glad it's finally, people are seeing it and people are responding so well to it. Well, congratulations on the film. Uh, fantastic. And, uh, and you guys here, you're in Los Angeles now and you're developing more features uh, documentaries and uh, let's talk again when the, the next film is made love to see what you do next either as a producer awesome. or as a director again awesome yeah i'm actually going to uh uta to become an agent trainee so oh wow. i'm really i'm really hoping to work in unscripted or working with sports talent um but i start in january um after just moving to la so i'm kind of taking a different path now but like i feel as if every path is where you're supposed to be everything happens for a reason so it's exciting that's amazing well there's you know that's i guess that's a good field uh that's a that's a sports talent is a is a rising field because it's like these franchises get keep getting more and more value and it seems to be the only live thing on television or the only advertising or you know gambling and stuff like that so basically what i'm saying is that athletes are going to make more money and, and being an agent is a good way to go yeah <laughs> I'm excited. I'm, I think it'll be a great opportunity. I'm hoping I still am working on projects on the side for a company in Ohio, some feature documentaries producing, but I'm just excited to see what's next after finishing school. 
Cool. All right. Well, let's talk again. Maybe we'll talk again soon. And either or, well, best of luck with your future. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. One, two, three, four, five, six.